and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from DearAuthor.com. It's listener mail time! Today we're going to be answering, or I'm going to be answering, some of the email that you've sent over the past month or two. I just found one from July and I feel really guilty for not having answered or read this one, so I'm going to start there and work my way forward. I have received a lot of interesting messages and suggestions and I want to feature them. So, yay! Mailbag! Intermix, our podcast sponsor, would like you to know about Aaron McCarthy's Sweet, a sexy new romance. College student Jessica Sweet never had a problem getting naked with a guy, but now she'll need to bear her soul or lose the best one she's ever met. Download Sweet today. And yes, this is music. And yes, it's from Sassy Outwater. And I will have more information at the end of the podcast who this is, where you can buy it, and how you can make it into a fabulous ringtone for all of your friends for the upcoming holidays. Did you guys know, by the way, that Hanukkah is over Thanksgiving this year? It's Thanksgivica. The good thing for y'all being that I usually do gift guides and giveaways for Hanukkah, so I'll probably end up doing at least two months worth of gift guides. So this is a quiet plea. If you have a gift that you love to give the readers in your life, would you email me and share with me what it is that you love to give? Because I love to feature and highlight excellent and very clever gifts for people who like to read because, well, that's all of us. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or Sarah, that's Sarah with an H, at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. Either way, totally selfish plea. If you have any gift ideas, I would love to hear them. And now, on with the podcast. This first email is from Jessica, and she sent this in July. Jessica, I apologize. Dear Sarah and Jane, love the podcast. While I listened to the discussion of nerd characters, I was interested in the debate you two had about what makes a nerd. It made me think about this blog post and the accompanying graph at Slackprop. The author argues that geeks are enthusiasts of a particular topic or field who collect things that relate to their interests, video games, TV shows, conventions, etc., Nerds are more interested in ideas than collecting things and tend to be academics. I think this social awkwardness can be common among both groups because they both exhibit a single-minded drive towards something other than social interaction. However, I don't think these people are always socially awkward. For example, my husband is a neuroscientist and he and many of his colleagues are pretty socially adept. I invite you to read this blog post and check out the awesome graph that tracks where the geek nerd spectrum certain ideas and things lie. Thank you for always interesting discussions and book recommendations. Jess. Okay, so I will totally have the link on the post. And it's so awesome. Totally excellent. Thank you, Jess. I apologize for the delay in reading your email. But one thing I want to point out. When we were talking about nerd heroes, I do not think that all nerds are socially awkward. And I don't think that it's a requirement that a nerd character be socially awkward. I think it's an expectation. I think if you have someone who is a romance reader looking at a book that is allegedly a quote-unquote nerd romance, there's going to be some sort of social interaction problem that's part of the plot, or at least the expectation thereof. And I am totally willing to concede the possibility that I'm wrong, because it happens. But, oh, this graph is so cool, I can't wait to share it for you. Thank you very much for that. That is completely awesome. This next email is from Jackie, and it's rather long, so I'm going to break it up into two parts. First, dear Sarah and Jane, the queens of all things awesome. Oh, I like this email a lot. Thank you. First of all, can I just say that you two rule so hardcore? Seriously, I love your sites. I love your taste in books. More Sarah's than Jane's. Sorry, Jane. I love your podcast. And Sarah, I love your books. All right, well, I'm going to print this out and put it on the fridge. Frankly, I just heart all the things you two do for the romance community, of which I fangirl over like, whoa. I just finished listening to one of your listener mail podcasts, and I was intrigued by what Sarah said, specifically about how you read books and your internal voice being the narrator. This got me thinking. How do other people quote-unquote read novels? So I bring you a question in two parts. These might seem like weird take some meds girl because you need some help kind of queries, but I'm curious nonetheless. Firstly, the internal voice inside my mind that narrates the stories I'm reading is actually unisex or a non-gendered voice. Do others, perhaps Jane, even read novels with a similar internal voice? Have either of you heard readers say that their narrator's voice is similar or an entirely different individual's voice altogether? Thoughts? Comments? No? Okay, moving on. Well, before I go on with Jackie's letter, yes, my internal reading voice is non-gendered. Sometimes it's my own 
But that happens more often when I'm proofreading my own work, because one thing that I do when I'm trying to catch typos, which I am probably effective at like 80% of the time, is to read aloud what I've written and often give it a different accent. So I'll read an entire blog post in an Australian accent, or I'll do a really bad British accent, or I'll try to imitate my mother-in-law. And I will read the words out loud because I will hear or visually see the typo if I'm trying to perform it better than I will if I'm just reading it. And if I am just reading it or I'm trying to read it and see if it makes sense, I hear my own voice. When I am reading a book, one of two things happens for me. Either I have my unisex, non-gendered voice that is sort of re reading the book in my mind. It's not a computer. It's not me. It's not a person that I've heard before. It is just the the way I'm be being read the book by my brain is that I am being read to. I don't understand why that is. I don't even know if people study reading. Do people study what happens to your brain when you read? Because I could go back in time and get an advanced degree because that would be rad. One thing I have noticed, though, is if I have listened to a book by a specific author performed by an audiobook narrator. Every other book by that author, I hear in that narrator's voice. And I don't know how the hell I remember the narrator's voice or, or what she sounds like, but I realized I was reading Molly Harper's How to Flirt with a Naked Werewolf. And because I had listened to the audiobook of another of her novels, I heard that narrator reading me this book. And I don't know if it was the rhythm or the performance, but after a while I was, I was completely baffled. Like, who is this woman's voice in my head? And I realized it was the narrator. So I, I am the same as you. I have a unisex, non-gendered voice reading to me when I am reading. And I've never asked Jane. I will ask her the next time we're speaking what, what happens when she reads or if she notices what happens when she reads. I'm going to ask her right now. When you're reading, do you have a voice? This is going to be such a strange question. When you're reading, do you have a voice inside your head? Does it sound like someone's reading you the book? S sometimes. And in fact, I've had to cut off some... Um, interaction with authors because of, there are some authors whose voices are so distinctive that I could actually hear them narrating the book to me. Oh, and that wow. Kind of, that kind of freaked me out. So like um, I couldn't, I had to draw back on that contact with a, a couple particular authors because it was really affecting my um, reading of it. And that's if you've heard their voice. Right. I mean, I, I don't know um, if you, I, you've spent a lot more time with Nora Roberts than I have. Yes. But I can almost hear her sometimes because she talks in the same kind of staccato rhythm of her dialogue. Zeb. Apparently, my dog would like everyone to know that he also hears voices and he doesn't like that he hears voices. Come here. Stop it. Yes, I, you are so right about Nora Roberts. I have heard her voice narrating books, particularly when the heroine is annoyed about something. I totally hear her voice. And she has that low sort of gravelly sort of Scarlett Johansson style voice, too. So it's very distinctive. That's really interesting. Do you always hear a voice or is it more if you've heard the author's voice? I think like I remember um, we had gone to a couple of functions with her at RWA a couple of years ago. And we had had lunch with her and I had just spent more time with her than I'd ever spent, obviously. And after I went, I tried to read a book. I think I was on the flight home and I couldn't, I had to put it away because I, <laughs> I can hear her. I mean, and that, that's an uncomfortable, for me at least, that's an uncomfortable situation, which is weird because I really like um, uh, audiobooks. I listen to them when I run and when I drive and stuff. Um, and I know that sometimes authors will narrate their own audiobooks, um, but for some reason I just felt like there was an intrusion of, and this was not this was not intentional by the author at all. It was my own, um, you know, stupid brain working <laughs> um, that I I had to set the book aside and, that makes sense. and wait until you know whatever experience I'd had faded. So and now I can read it just fine. Yes. Or if I spend any amount of time with a particular author whose character dialogue somewhat is similar to them, then I have a really difficult time. Oh, uh, here's a perfect opposite example. I used to read Mel Jean Brooks' blog before she ever became an author. Um, and she was very quirky, self-effacing, and funny. And so when I read her book, I thought for sure it was just going to be like whatever she wrote in her blog, but it wasn't anything like that. No, it's very so, different. Very, very different. 
so um, the, I, the, I have that problem too uh, with author blogs is that if their voices on their blog or something is really similar to their work, then I'm almost hearing the author tell me the story or I feel like the author's there kind of hovering over me. Um, so, but I think you and I have had this discussion before I, or with Angie, um, because I've spent a lot of time with you guys. So when I read your uh, emails or your texts, I, I hear you saying them to me. Oh, I have that problem too. If you, if you both email me, I hear each of you talking to me in my head because I'm so familiar with both of your voices. I hear what you're saying. And, and even in texts from my friends who are in South Carolina, those texts I read and I hear their voices in my head, all Southern and everything. I have that exact same problem. It's like my brain wants to fill in more senses than I actually have at that moment. You're just, you're, you're just reading, but you also get some sound now because we know what that person sounds like. But I am going to put the question to you, our lovely listening audience. Hi, cat. Hi, cats, kids in the back seat. This question's for you too. What happens when you read? Do you hear a voice in your head? Are you listening to the book in your mind? Are you are you having any auditory sense at all, or is it a completely different process? How do you read? What happens when you read? Let's get all scientific on your behinds. And actually, if you are involved or in some way knowledgeable or more knowledgeable than me, which is not difficult, on the science of reading and how our brains work when we read, I would love to hear from you. So email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. Seriously, you could probably have set up a drinking game based on the number of times I'm going to say an email address in this episode. Either way, I would really like to hear from you and I would like to know more about what you know about the science of reading and if people's reading experiences vary as much as I suspect that they do. And now I will continue with Jackie's letter. What about character perspective? I love so many different subgenres of romance. I will read anything so long as there's a happy ending and good writing with just one exception. If the author writes in first person, I can't do it. I've tried and failed at countless books that are written from one single point of view. Doing so almost always results in my DNFing it. I am left with feeling disconnected from the story and the boredom or frustration at being denied the other characters' viewpoints always leaves me with the bang head against nearest wall syndrome. The only exceptions that I found to this rule are books that have two or more first-person perspectives. I've never met another reader, romance or otherwise, who felt this way. So I was wondering what your thoughts on it were. Have you ever encountered a reader who feels such? Or have you ever experienced that disconnection because of first-person writing? Or is the answer more likely that I'm just a wackadoodle? Oh, Jackie, girl, you are so not a wackadoodle and you are not alone. I know many readers who really, really hate with the burning fire of a thousand suns filled with hate first-person narration. I personally really like it, but it's hard because in order to like it, I have to like the person whose head I'm in. And this was the problem I had with Twilight and this was the problem I had with Fifty Shades. Not a surprise because the first person narration was a person that I really, really did not want to be in their brain anymore because she was an idiot, especially Fifty Shades. There was a point, and I've said this before, there was a point where I was reading it, uh, trying to read it, trying to read it, and, and, the, and the little indicator at the bottom of the screen would never advance, and I was never getting anywhere, and all I could think was, is this is depressing, this is not hot, I hate this person. So if I am in the head of someone who I truly dislike, and I have no other options but to be there, then yes, I lose interest, and I cannot connect, and I feel that incredible distance of why can't I get into this. But when it's a first-person narration that I love, that I really enjoy, I'm totally fine with first person. And I feel like when I write a review, I have to warn readers, how the heads up, this is first person, because there are many people like you who think, oh, I hate first person. No, thank you. Never going to try it again. I hate it. For example, the Molly Harper book that I mentioned earlier is first person, but I'm getting a lot of the other character points of view and I don't mind her perspective. And there's enough dialogue that it's not paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of being in this girl's head while she ruminates on whatever it is she's ruminating on. Other things happen. And that's key for me with first person. Oh, I don't mind first person. I read Chick Lit a long time ago um, by the dozens. I was, you know, one of the five that bought those books. <laughs> I was more than five for a little while. Now it's only five. <laughs> but you know what I used to hate? I used to hate present tense, first person, present tense. But this whole slate of um, self-published books, they're often written in first person, present tense. And I found that I don't even mind it. I remember the first time I was um, 
came across first person present tense um, for the listeners that don't know. I'm a lawyer, and uh, wait for to, real. You're are you an for, internet lawyer? For real, for real. You're an um, internet lawyer. Wow. And I used to have be in private practice, and I was a trial lawyer. And during one of my annual seminars, they brought in a storyteller because telling a story to a jury is one of your most important tools. And this guy was amazing. And he told stories and told about telling a story structure and what are the elements to telling good, being a good storyteller. Um, And he told, he talked about the um, power of first person present tense. And he talked about, uh, he began to tell us a story about a time he got his haircut when he was a kid. And he says at first, the first person present tense sounds very awkward to the a listener. And I would think that would be true for the reader as well. But he says, as you become more immersed in it, the first person present tense brings an immediacy that no other tense can bring. So he, and he gave an example and he said, it's not, you have to be a superb storyteller to use the first person present tense. So if you're standing in front of a jury and you're telling the story of your client, if you're not a good storyteller and you try to tell the client's story in first person present tense, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said that it, there are times when you have a really emotional case um, or, or a really powerful incident that you want the uh, audience to be there with you at the time the events occur. And there's nothing more, um, uh, there's no tool better for that than using the first person present tense. So I always remember that story uh, when I read first person present tense now, but I think it's overused. Um, I probably prefer third person, um, but there's, when you have first person, you get a really deep point of view. And some people are able to do that with third person. I think that um, Kit Roka, Donna Heron and Bree Rogers, is it? I think that's it. They write together as Kit Roka. They write in the third person, and they have very deep points of view. Um, and I and there are other authors who are good at that in the third person. Um, but I do think that it's almost easier to kind of be in uh, the character's head when they use first person and first person present tense. Um, and from a writer's standpoint, I wonder if it just isn't easier for them to write that way. And the reason I say that is because so many self-published books are in that fashion. Onto something there. There are a lot more books published in first person present. I think if a writer is really skilled at first person present tense, I don't notice until midway through or in the later part of the book when I realize, oh, this is present tense. And sometimes I wonder if my brain just automatically switches it to, to past tense because that's what I'm used to. I've noticed more and more first person and first person present tense. And if I don't mind the narrator and I don't mind the person whose head I'm in, it's very fun. I like first person. I have no problem with it because it's like you said, it's an immediacy and an intimacy and it invites empathy very quickly. The one thing I really have trouble with, and this is something I've only encountered one per- one place, is second person present tense. Oh my God, I hate that. <laughs> you go this way. You go that way. You are here. You take a right. You enjoy some. And the one, the one place I consistently find this is in the, the in-flight magazine on Continental and United Flights. The, they merge, so it's United Airlines, but I still, I think the magazine, I haven't paid attention to the title of it, I think it's still called Continental Magazine. In each issue, which is what you read when they make you, which is what I read when they make me turn off my Kindle. Um, when you don't have to do that, you're not going to have to do that anymore. I know. I love this so much. I can't even tell you. There's always an article in the Continental Magazine, um, three days in a, in a place. And it's a travel journey of three days in a specific city. But the entire sequence of events, as much as I love short articles about different places and all the things you can do in a short amount of time they're written in second person present tense and i hate it so much because you i'm being told what i'm doing and it's so annoying it's it's like the the choose your own adventure stuff that used to bug the crap out of me because i don't like being told what to do even when i'm asking the book to tell me what to do i don't like it i do not like second person present tense and I love those articles 
if I can just switch the tense. It makes me insane. I hate well, sex. There is a there was a self-published author who had a very successful series. <clears throat> Her name is Kelly Maine, K-E-L-L-I, uh, Maine. And um, it's about a woman who is, I think, kidnapped and then forced into some kind of sexual perversions. It was second person present tense. So I never bought it because I thought this, I, this just was not for me. But it was up on NetGalley because she had been acquired by Forever Romance. And so I... Um, requested the first book. I could not make it through the first chapter. It was crazy pants. I mean, <laughs> I totally give props to the readers who uh, like this story and who could make it through. But, you know, as she's describing what the male protagonist is doing to her, it was just, I, it was bizarre for me. And I read another book um, that had the second person present tense, and I was just like, nope, I'm out. So, I mean, I, co- <laughs> I completely understand people who hate a particular tense and come across it and be like, no, that's just not for me. I can't take it. Because I'm that way about second person present tense yep. or second person. And I, I, I always feel the need to warn people if I'm reviewing a book, this book is in first person because I know there's a sizable number of readers who'll be like, well, nope, not happening because I hate it. You know, I think I used to do that in the past and I've stopped doing that because first person is so prevalent these days. Yeah, that's um, true. And I mean, if you think of, think of the big blockbusters, Sylvia Day's books or E.L. James books. All um, first person. All first person. I wonder if the increase in first person from Twilight to Fifty Shades to Sylvia Day and the and the huge sort of like you said blockbuster phenomenon events of those books is related in part to the fact that they're first person i don't know i think it might be a fan fiction thing yeah um, because i think uh fan fiction is often written in first person and first person present tense and i think um it's easier as a new writer to write in first person than it is in third yes because if you start writing in third you get more and more away from the characters and it's harder to get the emotion back into the words So you are not alone. You are not a wackadoodle. And yes, there are many people who dislike first person intensely. So you're not alone. Isn't that reassuring? I always like when when I can say, no, 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 no. There's lots of people who like that one thing just like you. It's the internet. You are never alone on the internet. There's always somebody who likes what you like. This email is a reader recommendation, but I wanted to share it with you because it's awesome. This email is from Danielle, the book queen, who you heard from last episode. Sarah, I only noticed recently that earlier this year, one of your book club choices was Bridget Kemmerer's Storm. Obviously, I missed the chat, but I did go back and review what everyone had to say about it. Anyway, my question is this. Have you continued her series since then? What are your thoughts on the books? I received Spark Book 2 from Library Thing last year, and for whatever reason, it sat on my bookshelf for months. I put off reading it because I didn't want to start yet another series out of order, but then in April of this year, I finally picked it up, and that same day I finished it, it was so good. I loved Gabriel. I loved how he interacted with Lane and her brother. I loved the way the Merrick brothers and Hunter interact. From that moment, I was hooked, and I quickly picked up Storm, as well as the available novellas. When Hunter's book Spirit went up on NetGalley a few months later, I snatched that up as well, loved it, and quickly ordered my own copy for my keeper shelf. Now I'm anxiously awaiting the next book in the series. His book is going to be quite interesting. This would be Nick's book. As we found out in Breathless, the last novella, that Nick is actually gay, though obviously he has yet to admit as much to anyone, especially his brothers. Now that I have rambled about my love of this series, I have to say this. If I had started with Storm, I'm not sure I would be as big a fan as I am now. For me, Storm was just okay. I felt like Becca took over the entire book. I didn't care much for Chris or whether or not he got the girl. In fact, I wish Hunter and Becca ended up together instead, though after reading Hunter's book, my opinion in regards to that has changed as well. Don't get me wrong, I did like Storm, and it did provide some laughs and important information about the overall series. However, Spark and now Spirit remain tied for my favorite in this series. I'd reread them in a heartbeat. But Storm, I think, may simply sit on the shelf because you can't break up a series. Girl, I know what you mean. So in short, I guess this email is really my way of saying that if you have not yet continued this series, I highly suggest you do so. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on the other books. Enjoy, Danielle, the book queen. Well, Danielle, I'm sure I have mentioned in the past that I am 
not particularly very skilled at keeping up with series. And in fact, I kind of suck at it. So no, I have not read any of the other books in the series because series me suck bad. Yeah, exactly. But your email kind of makes me want to read the whole thing, especially because I felt the same as you. I had a hard time with the first book. When the heroine and the hero ended up together, I kind of liked the other guy better a lot of the time. But you are totally on with identifying the thing I loved the best about the series, which is the relationship between the brothers and the way that they have to work together and solve problems and, you know, deal with being all magic-y and stuff. So thank you for recommending this to me. Um, my credit card, however, does not thank you, but that's okay. That's kind of a constant battle between me and my credit card anyway. This email is from Joanne. And she is responding to a podcast a few weeks ago. Dear Sarah, for the reader who is looking for historical mysteries with a touch of romance, I have a few to add to the list. My very favorite is the Sebastian St. Cyr mystery series by C.S. Harris. I highly recommend the series. The other two are the first four Lady Julia Gray books by Deanna Rayborn. I think they go downhill after book four. And the Pink Carnation series by Lauren Willig. I always enjoy listening to you guys. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Joanne. You are totally right. The Sebastian St. Cyr mystery series totally should have been on my list. So thank you very much. And finally, I have one more email. And Jane's going to join me for this one. Julie writes, hi, I just want to say that I enjoy the podcast. It makes my commute so much better, and I've been listening for a few months now. I'm not sure if you guys have covered this topic already, but lately I've been thinking about books everyone else loves, but I don't. I feel like an anomaly because I might be the only person who didn't like Lord of Scoundrels. That book just did not work for me. I don't know if it's because I usually read contemporaries or the writing style wasn't for me, or I felt the hero was a huge jerk, probably a combination of all three. Have you done an episode about books that didn't work for you that other people loved or vice versa? I think it would be interesting, especially since I love hearing you talk about which books worked for you and which ones didn't. My favorite part of the podcast is when you guys talk about what you've been reading lately. Thanks, Julie. Julie, yes, this is, <laughs> is so alienating and can make you feel really, really squidgy when everyone else just adores this book and you're like, uh, no. I felt that way, honestly, about Fifty Shades. I honestly felt for a while that there was something wrong with me and my brain that I did not like Fifty Shades and I didn't like Twilight and I couldn't get swept up in it like other people were and I couldn't enjoy it the way other people were. And it's a kind of a lonely feeling when you think that everyone else adores this one thing and you don't. But no, you're not alone. I know readers who don't like the Lord of Scoundrels series or the book itself. I think one of the reasons it's really alienating when everyone loves something that you don't is it makes you question your taste. Well, am I wrong? Am I wrong for not liking this one thing? And absolutely, you're not. Even if everyone's opinion is that X book is fabulous, just because you didn't like it doesn't mean that you're wrong. That just means their opinion is different. And this comes up mostly and quite loudly when you see people trying to make lists of the top 10 romances ever or the top 100 historicals ever because people are going to say hell no this is the whole reason why lists are the new internet thing because they conspire people to go no you're wrong and i'm going to use a lot of words in the comments and start a flame war because you're wrong now i'm not actually trying to start a flame war but yes it can be very alienating to feel like you don't like something that everyone else adores i also know that jane and i disagree on bet me she hates bet me i think it's fantastic there's books that she loves, and I'm like, no, no, that's not for me. Oh, my God. There are so many books that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that needs to be like your tagline. <laughs> Jane Lit, there are so many books that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm frequently out of step. I feel like uh, there are tons of books people love and I hate. Fifty Shades would be one of them. I mean, um, they're with you. So and bet me, yeah. Like and then the thing about like bet me is the more that people praise it, the more I'm like, oh my god, I hated that book. It's like my hate grows unreasonably larger every time I hear praise for it. It's like an invert, proportionally inverse reaction. It's totally irrational. I understand this, um, but yeah. Uh, so bet me, I think, you know, I don't want to go into my hate for bet me again, but donuts anyway, 
And there's also Forest Sweet and Cardona. Yeah. And the other oh. thing is that when there is a book that everyone loves, it often comes with the message that you should like this. If you are a romance reader, then you should like this. Why don't you like this? This should be something that you like. And I, like I said, I don't like being told what I ought to be doing. Yes. Um, I know exactly what you mean. Even though I'd like to bet me, I know exactly that feeling you mean. Because your hate just grows when people tell you you ought to like something that you don't. Right. Right. Um, I can't think of anything right off my the top of my head other than bed me but there is a whole host of books I'm always like what you liked what (laughs) sometimes I you know to explain to me what it is you liked about it because I just didn't get it (laughs) I'm off my the thing that I find the most jarring is um when people and I and I'm having a hard time coming up with an example of this but I think you'll know what I mean when people like a book that I don't understand why they like it because I know their reading taste and that's so far outside what I expected they would enjoy. Sure, I get that. And I also understand too, like there was this, and I can't remember what house did it. Maybe it was Harper. I don't know what house it was, but they did this um, 17 things only book lovers will understand. It was on BuzzFeed. And there was one of them was, when a friend of yours, a book friend of yours, doesn't like the book that you love, and then it has a it had a picture of Wesley from The Princess Bride saying, this will put a damper on our relationship. And so there are times when I'm like, wow, you didn't like that book? That book was so awesome. What is wrong with you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, um, yes, we're very judgy. Yes, we are. And it's not so much that I don't like someone who doesn't like a book that I expected them to like. It's that I'm upset that I'm wrong. Like, wait, I, you wait, you like that? Because I didn't think that it would be a thing that you like. I am, however, when you and me and Angie are all in the same room, I am always the one who doesn't like what you guys like because your tastes are much more aligned than mine are with either of you. So <laughs> there are all these book discussions where you're like, no, you you won't like that. Don't read that. Oh my God, <laughs> it was so good. But Sarah, no, really don't read it. It was so good. Sarah, seriously, stop trying to buy that book. <laughs> so it is it is alienating when you don't like something that everyone likes. And it's alienating when you love something that you know other people are going to hate too, because you, you kind of have to judge who's going to like what book. So before you go, what are you reading right now? Could you have a do you have any quick ideas or do you have to like pull out the Kindle and look in your folder for February 2016 and see what you're reading right now? I don't think I'm read I I don't think I've read any February books. Um cuz you've already finished them. <laughs> <laughs> I have really had a terrible time. Um actually the last book that I read, I, this isn't the last book I read, but the last good book I read was the Lizard uh, Warrior Priest book. The one that I don't think you'd like. Yes. yes. I was watching some of the discussions about um, the lizard warrior priest and his religion. And I was like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. Well, you know, it's um, it's interesting because, you know, I come from a, a particular religious background. And I kind of shy away from those types of religious books. But I felt like the journey that I went on with these characters um, is kind of a similar journey that people of faith go on at any time when they que- when when especially when they're devout and then begin to question the underpinnings of their beliefs. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, the book is called "The Last Hour of Gan." It's by Arlie Smith. There are some really disturbing um, themes in the story. In fact, um, the book is going to be my November book club pick. And I'm going to ask the author about some of these disturbing things, themes, and I hope that she gives me a non-glib answer. I'll report back if I'm disappointed. In yes, this. I would like to know about that, too. But I think that there were two things that I thought were so amazing. Now, this book is super long. Like, I was at 30% for, like, days. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I start to wonder if something's wrong with my Kindle. Like, what, what, why, why, why am I still at 30%? What the hell? No, I actually started this book on Friday and I didn't finish it until Sunday night. And I was like, I felt like I was reading nonstop. I, th- I read later that it was over 400,000 words. Oy. So that would explain it. I was reading four books <laughs> over the weekend. But it's a really an epic story. And I, 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 re- I admire Smith because she's writing things 
that no one else is really writing and she's, you know, other authors might split this up into five books and sell it separately. I mean, I don't, I felt like, you know, she gave you the entire story in one book and it's a big story about, uh, you know, earthlings that crash land on an alien planet and then are found by this lizard man, Miorak, and they both, both creatures, I think the other creature is, um, is just that, a creature. Because to Miorak, the humans are disgusting looking. They have no face and their skin, when you touch it, is kind of wiggles and he's kind of grossed out by them. And obviously he's a lizard. He's got scales. He's biped. He wears clothes. He's got three fingers and three toes. Um, but because they both have speech, um, Amber, the female protagonist, recognizes that this must be an intelligent being and vice versa. Right. That Bjork recognizes that um, that only, uh, only hu- humans, as he uses the term, would have the power of speech. So uh, through that recognition, then they begin to communicate with each other. And I thought she did a great job of showing how they began to learn each other's language, how they communicated when they didn't have a common language through drawings in the sand and through gestures and things like that. That was, the world building was pretty tremendous. And Miorak as a warrior priest, um, and how he falls in love with this disgusting creature, Amber, the human, um, was pretty amazing. And I felt like he had a huge turnaround at the end, which may have answered some of the more troubling um, issues in the book. But let me speak to those because I don't want anyone to pick this book up if they have some particular triggers. Amber uh, undergoes some really terrible sexual violence toward the end of the book. Um, when she's captured by a raider group. And <clears throat> some feel that Miorak's society um, it, it normalizes the rape of lizard ladies. I, <clears throat> I felt like that wasn't entirely clear, but you could read it that way. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one of the questions I want to talk to Smith about. Um, so I, I don't want to... I, I don't want to say or send anyone to this book and say that that's not problematic. Mm-hmm. But for me, that the storytelling and the world building and the two main characters um, were tremendous. And for me, overcame those uh, problematic aspects. Uh, Amber, as the heroine, is quite an amazing um, heroine. She's smart. She's resourceful. Um, she saves herself and Miorak. Um, one of the things that an, other readers had pointed out is that it's so strange to see Amber, the super strong female character, but then all the other female characters in the book are very weak. Um, but to some extent, I saw that with the men too. Like Miorak was the only really strong one, although you could argue that the Raiders were strong um, and they were mostly male. And then the the structure of the world kind of implies that because of this um, biological hazard that uh, decimated the lizard world and then they they, uh, repopulated after that, this biological hazard um, made the women more submissive and weak. Uh, So again, problematic, but I was really blown away by this story. Uh, I'd like to read it again when I have um, a week. <laughs> <laughs> when I have several hours in a row. The days, seriously. Um, so that I can kind of parse out some of the more difficult issues. Uh, but the, 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 the faith issue, Amber, the, the female protagonist, is an atheist. And Miorak is this devout warrior priest. And they're... Um, they argue with each other regularly about God and destiny and um, preordained things and that sort of thing. And they do it in a way that's not insulting to each other. And I thought that was really, because a lot of times when you see atheists and Christians going at it, they're both really insulting to each other. But in this particular circumstance, I felt like both showed respect for each other 
just didn't go, just didn't buy into the other's belief system. But in the end, because of things that happened, they kind of both moved from their polar extremities to toward a more common ground. It sounds like you're going to have a book club that is about as long as the book itself. <laughs> well, my review was like 2,500 words. Um, That's long for you. I know. I had a lot of things to say. Um, but yeah, I hope that the book club is um, successful. I was really kind of disappointed because I picked this book club book called In the Fields, which is a interracial romance. I think I talked about it on a previous podcast and no one um, had really um, came and discussed the book with me. Uh, and maybe it was because the book was, they didn't like the book. They couldn't finish the book. You know, I feel like <clears throat> we get a lot of people talking about, hey, we want to so we want to hear more about interracial romance or more multicultural, but when you present the opportunity for it, uh, there's like radio silence. So are you picking up something new to read or do you need some time after that one to, to not be reading something for a little while? Well, I've picked up, I started four books and finished none of them. Ouch. I hate that feeling. Right. Um, I did read Kinks by Thea Harrison, and that is her book coming out next month. And I liked it a lot more than I thought it was going to. She's a really uneven writer for me. I loved her first book, Dragon Bound, is it? Yeah, I think Dragon Bound was the first one. Um, but the other ones in the series were kind of just uh, iffy for me. And there's one of them, Oracle's Moon. I'm just not a big reincarnation fan, and that one I did not like. So um, I was a little reluctant to start this book, but I really like the characters. They're both very strong-willed, and they um, fight constantly. I don't want to say they fight constantly, but they're often at odds with each other. And to, But because there's so much sexual tension between each other, the antagonism is really just foreplay and eventually they both come to recognize and embrace that that is a book you might like you think so oh i'm all excited when you when you can point out a book that i might like <laughs> i don't know it was different for sure uh than i had expected and the thing of it for you sarah is like i don't really understand your reading taste <laughs> you so it's hard say. for me to, to, to i mean because I, I feel like you're very eclectic. I am so very I don't eclectic, really, it's true. So I don't really know, um, like there's particular tropes that I really love. And I think that there are books that you, tropes that you love that you, that I just don't. And so I'm not even reading those. And I think if I read those books, I'd have a better understanding of what appealed to you. But because we don't even read in like the same dimension, yeah, I have a hard time. And you, I think it's, true in reverse that we ha just have a hard time recommending books to each other oh it's absolutely true it's absolutely true that we can't do that i just finished reading last night uh, molly harper's never flirt with a naked werewolf and this was sort of my brain reset book i was having a really hard time figuring out what i wanted to read so i picked something that had been in my i've been meaning to read this folder and sort of told myself, okay, you can read this without reviewing it. But then, of course, I've been talking about it all over the place because I found I really enjoyed taking a break into first-person sarcastic paranormal. And I had not expected to enjoy first-person sarcastic paranormal. The, the book I think I'm going to pick up next, and I definitely needed a, a brain reset, was um, it's Kara McKenna's new book. And they, Unbound. Uh, Unbound? Did you read it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's your review in one word. I get that. I don't mind the heroine. I like the beginning because it starts off with a really unpleasant reply all mistake where one of her friends reply, one of the heroine's friends replies all to an email and starts talking shit about her and how much this person doesn't like that she's lost weight and is, you know, a new person or whatever. And I thought, oh, I have been there many times. So I was curious about it, but I've just gotten to the point where they um, – where she's had she's had bad lock water and is now very sick and she's at this guy's doorstep and I have a feeling this this hero might be a little too uh, dark tortured and angry for my tastes but I'm gonna try to keep going. Well, I think she does that character pretty well. I mean, it's yeah. I thought After Hours was fascinating. I think then you'll probably enjoy this one. What did you not like about it? 
Um, I mean, I thought it was, I, I think it was good. Um, but I feel like, I, and I feel this way about Kara McKenna's stories a lot. She has a difficult time bringing closure to the ends of her stories. I feel like I get a good buildup, um, but no real satisfaction at the end. So whenever I finish reading her books, I'm always like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, well, what about this? And what about that? And wait a minute, what happened to that? Yeah, and I really feel like in this one, she had a lot of, she brought up a lot of issues and they weren't, I, I, I don't really know where she was going to go from there. I mean, they, I, I don't know if the intimation was that they were going to live in this remote cabin forever or I, I don't feel satisfied when I read her books. I mean, I feel like I'm emotionally connected and then I'm kind of left out there dangling. That was how I felt after the last one, that most of the issues I understood how they would be resolved, but I didn't see them resolved. And then the ones that bothered me, I could figure out what was going to happen. And I had to sort of make up my own ending, which makes it sound like, you know, my brain's really lazy, but it's not. I just want to know that if you're going to, like you said, if you're going to bring up really big, difficult things, resolve them in a way where I know they'll be, resolve them in a way that I feel like there's more hope than question at the end of the book. I don't think that's being lazy. I mean, <clears throat> I think that's what we expect in a book. We expect a resolution middle or beginning, middle and end. And I feel like we never get the end from her. And I feel like it would only take like a chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to I keep reading though. So I'm, I'm reluctant to read her anymore. Um, I did read this one because just so many people recommended it. When I close the book, I want to feel satisfied. Yep. I totally understand. And that's all for this week's podcast. This is a nice long one, and I mean that in every possible sense. No, actually, I really don't, because that would be gross. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed our reader mailbag. And if you would like to email us, and you totally should, because have I mentioned how much we like getting email? It's sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message at our Google Voice number, which is 1201371DBSA. Thank you for calling, and don't forget to leave a name and where you're calling from so we can work your message into an upcoming podcast. I realize the change sounded a little distorted, and I apologize for that. I'm not sure what happened with the audio, but I'm glad I got to have her on the podcast because it's way more fun when we can talk to each other and tell each other how wrong she is. Yeah. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. This is the Shadow Orchestra. This track is called Sweet as a Nut, and I will have links in the entry as to where you can buy this song and where you can learn more about the band. The best part about featuring original music is that more often than not, I get to link to MySpace, and I have not been to MySpace in like 20 years for any other purpose except to look for new music. I think it's totally awesome. So yay, MySpace. And yes, of course, the Shadow Orchestra is on MySpace. Podcast sponsor Intermix would like you to know about Aaron McCarthy's suite. College student Jessica Sweet never had a problem getting naked with a guy, but now she has to bare her soul. You can download Aaron McCarthy's emotional and hot new ebook available on October 15th, which is like totally over already. So you can go get it. Yay! Future podcasts will feature, you will never guess, Jane and I talking about romance novels. Plus, we're going to talk about the upcoming holiday romances whether or not I get more Jewish romances this year for Hanukkah or not, although this year they'd be Thanksgivinga romances. You know, that should totally be an anthology, don't you think? The Thanksgivinga anthology is not going to happen again for another 90,000 years, I think, that Hanukkah and Thanksgiving will line up like this. American Thanksgiving, by the way. Sorry, Canada, your Thanksgiving is in October. I don't think Hanukkah is going to be in October. If you have any suggestions, we love to hear from you. I won't give you the email address again because you totally know what it is. But wherever you are, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>